So with the explosion of social media and viral videos and all sorts of things that we now get to see online, we get used to what you might consider to be quirky, strange little stories. So as ridiculous as it sounds, I am a sucker for those, I guess you would call it unlikely pairings of things that happen in videos. For example, when a dog and an elephant are best friends in a video, that just makes me happy. If there's a mama cat who takes care of like a baby bunny who lost its family, I just find joy in that. It's good times. A police officer and a dance-off with kids on a city street, it just makes you think hope is alive, that there's things happening all around the world. So a while back, I was watching one of those videos online, and it was this cat and a squirrel, and they were hanging out on a roof, and they were just playing together. Now, you all know if you've watched enough cats and squirrels, that's not normally what they're doing. But this little cat was just sitting there, tail flopping back and forth, and this squirrel was jumping around and playing. And that cat seemed absolutely content to have the company and happy as can be. And I watched it, and it was like a 30-second video. So I don't know, maybe at 33 seconds in the video, the, you know, the cat ate the squirrel for all I know. But I like to think that they were best friends. So apart from me being easily entertained online, unlikely pairings for me do something in order to help me think that things are possible. They go against what we think we know. So when you see opposing views maybe working together or unlikely friendships develop or animal instincts that are reversed, there's almost something inside of you that you're waiting. You're like, how long is this going to last before things go the other direction? I bring that up because today as we finish chapter 3 in the book of Galatians, we find an unlikely pairing. For two and a half chapters, the apostle Paul has taught us and he has warned us and he has relished the superiority of grace and faith over the law and workspace righteousness. He's pulled no punches along the way in helping people understand that we are saved by grace through faith. Our justification is not because of the law. Our justification is because of faith in what Jesus has done for us. Over and over, he's shown the superiority of the Abrahamic covenant over the Mosaic covenant. He keeps saying, it's all about grace. It's all about faith. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done for us. So by the time we get to the end of chapter 3, we're almost conditioned in our mind to think faith is good, the law is bad. Grace is great, works are not. That's almost the way you get to this point. The Apostle Paul does not draw that same conclusion. In fact, he would say faith is good and the law is good when the law is being used lawfully. Faith and law are not enemies, but rather they are partners together in God's redemptive plan. It might seem like an unlikely pairing for us, but in the mind of God, they work together for God's purposes. So today as we finish out Galatians chapter 3, I invite you to go with me over in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 19 through 29. I'm teaching this evening on unlikely pairings. Now, let me say from the very beginning, this could be one of the most difficult messages I've preached in a long time. In fact, I was telling some people earlier today that 
I thought this morning's message was difficult when I preached it, and then I got into my notes for tonight, and I was like, who in the world lined this up? Two of these messages in the same day. My, my brain is almost hurting, but here's the reason why this is such a difficult message for me. It's also a difficult one for us to listen and walk our way through. This is at the crux of how faith and the law of God work together. Sometimes if you've been a believer and you grew up in a legalistic system, when you understand grace, you're like, I'm free, I'm free, and you're excited. But then the question hits you somewhere along the way, but what about all the commands of God that are in Scripture? Where does that fit? On the other side of things, if you have experienced a life in which it has been freedom and you've grown up in grace, and then you get into Scripture and it's talking about these commands, you, you almost sit there and think, am I supposed to do that? Like, is that Old Testament? Is that New Testament? Is that grace? Is that law? Like, what am I supposed to do? It, again, it's this thing of walking it out, applying the truths of God's Word. This is a text that begins to help us define what that line looks like. So I'm going to ask you tonight, give me grace as we walk through. I will probably be looking at my notes more tonight than probably any other message I've delivered. And the reason is a wrong word here or there, and all of a sudden we're on a completely different path. So I'm going to have prayer. How about that? I think that would be right in order for this evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask tonight that you would allow our minds, our hearts to be renewed in your word. God, help us to walk through this text in a way that represents how you desire to live it. God, will be grateful for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of the length of this text, we're simply going to set things up, read, explain, keep walking, read, explain, so we'll work our way through. But let's set things up. So from the beginning of chapter 3, there have now been multiple arguments showing the superiority of faith and grace and God's promises over self-effort and over the law of Moses. So in Galatians 3, 1 through 5, this is your quick recap. We talked about six necessary questions intended to make us think through the implications of choosing law over faith. In verses 6 through 9, we saw God's plan has always been faith. Then you get into verses 10 through 14 and revealed why faith is better. And in that section, it tells us it's not only the way that we are counted righteous and that we're made true sons of Abraham and we are redeemed from the curse of the law and we are also given the promise of the Spirit. But we also find in verses 15 through 18, it emphasized how God's promises to Abraham are unchanging, they are fulfilled in Christ, and they are based on God's perfection and not based on our performance. It's almost like you can get to the end of the chapter with a chip on your shoulder against the law. Like, the law is bad. Like, I'm against the law. I'm now under grace. The law has nothing on me. That's not how Paul gets to the end of this chapter. In fact, Paul would say nothing could be further from the truth. The law was established by God. It was written by God. It is used by God, and it has a very specific purpose. Apart from the law, here's the big view. Here's big view. Apart from the law, we would never recognize the depth of our sin 
or see our ongoing need for Christ. Apart from that, we're going to think we're good, we're fine, we're doing wonderful. So the chapter finishes by showing this partnership between law and faith. In 1 Timothy 1.8, it says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or if it's used according to its rightful purpose. So how is the law used rightfully or how is it used well? How does the law partner with faith when it comes to God's plan? Here's the first truth and we'll read the text under that. The law exposes our sin nature and reveals our need for a savior. The law exposes our sin nature and reveals our need for a savior. This is found in verses 19 through 22. So let's go ahead and read that section. It says, why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If your mind is not hurting yet, let me give you something to show you why this is a difficult text. Did you know that one section from the Apostle Paul is considered to be one of his most difficult passages, most theologically rich text that he ever wrote? Did you know there's over 300 interpretations of that section of Scripture? Over 300. Now, the issue is there's only one interpretation of Scripture. There's many applications of Scripture. So that's going to tell me there's a whole lot of views that are going in a different direction. To be as safe as we can possibly be, I want to rise up and let's get the 30,000-foot view of this. Let's get an overview of what's taking place in the text. So to understand it, here's the big picture. The law exposes our sin nature and reveals our need for a Savior. So verse number 19, it starts with, the law given in the first place. Why was it given? It says it was added because of transgressions. Now, transgressions is another word for sin. That is, the law was given because of sin. Now, here's a key question that we need to ask at this point. Did people sin prior to the law? Thank you all for that. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, man, we're going to have to stop and go backwards a little bit tonight. Yes. People sinned prior to the law. In fact, you'll find that prior to the law is when Cain kills Abel. Prior to the law is when God destroyed the world by a flood because of wickedness. We find that Genesis 6 through 9. No sooner did Noah get things put up on, on park and all of a sudden, he ties one on, gets drunk right afterwards. We got more sin coming in. Pride is manifest at the Tower of Babel over in Genesis 11. Sodom and Gomorrah described in Genesis 19. All of this is taking place prior to the law. So here's another question for you. Did people sin after the law? Yes. yes. Hey, you all were better at that one. That's good. That's good. 
So the wanderings of Israel through the wilderness, it's wanderings that are interlaced constantly with them walking away from righteousness and away from God's standard. You know that that Saul had all sorts of issues. The prophets were constantly calling God's people back to God's law and back to God and back to righteousness. So here's the point behind that. The law did not create sin. The law did not stop sin. The law exposed sin. Okay, so the word transgressions, it means stepping over the boundary. God's law showed God's righteous boundaries. That is, even though people could see the boundary, even though people understood the repercussions for stepping over the boundaries, people still transgressed. They still stepped over. They still sinned. That's rebellion. Now, the question becomes, why? Why would we know what is right and willfully choose to do what is wrong, even when we know punishment and pain is on the other side of this? I got two words to explain it. Sin, nature. Humanity is born with this sin nature. The reason that is important is because prior to Christ, sin did not corrupt our nature. Our nature was corrupt, therefore we sinned. Does that make sense? See, the reason this is so important is there's a lot of thought as to whether or not a person's actions are by nurture or by nature. If you get into psychology, so much of it is, why are they doing what they're doing? Was it because of their environment? Was it their home life? Was it all of these things? Was it nurture or was it nature? If you're talking about sin, every single person born of the seed of man has been born with this sin nature. It is inherent within humanity. That's one of the reasons you don't have to teach kids to scream and to pitch a fit and to demand their way and to say, this is mine. There's a selfishness. There's a sinfulness that is built in. It's a part of that fallen human nature. So from the moment sin entered the world through the Garden of Eden, Everyone born of the seed of man has been born with a sin nature. Now, the law of God, it exposed how deep, how rebellious, how sinful we really are. Now, that is extremely important. For people to see the depth of their sin, they need to see that before they understand their need for a Savior. Until we see God's righteousness, we are deceived about our personal goodness. But when you stand before a holy God, you're undone. When you recognize how perfect he is, all of a sudden it exposes the, the wrong motives and the wrong heart and the wrong attitude and the things that have been kept up on the inside. There's a, there's a part in which you're undone once you are in the presence of a holy God. That's what the law does. It exposes sin. So Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For though I, have known about, I would not have known about coveting, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So continue on with me in verse number 19. The apostle Paul picks up this argument from the rabbis. 
The rabbis were so impressed by the holiness of God, the separateness of God, that they believed it would be impossible for God to give his law directly to humans. Instead, they taught that God gave it first to angels, and then from angels, it was then shared over with humans. So the Apostle Paul picks up this argument. He says, if that's the argument you're going with, he says, when compared with the promises to Abraham, the law was actually given secondhand. Look further in verse number 19. He says, the law was given until the seed would come. Until it implies that the law is temporary. It is from one point to another. This law was given for the interval between the time of Moses until the time of Christ. Verse number 20. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Paul points out that a mediator, literally one who stands between two parties, is not needed if there's only one party that is involved. So God gave his covenant directly to Abraham. Remember, it was God was the one who was establishing that covenant. There wasn't a need for a mediator on that side. It was God working on that. In this, when it comes to the Mosaic law, he says there's now a mediator. The weakness of the law is it depended upon two persons. That is the lawgiver and the law keeper brought together now by a mediator. Verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God. Now you would think that Paul might say, yes, it's not. He says just the opposite. He shares the limitations of what the law has. The law could not impart life, but it also says that scripture has now imprisoned everyone who is under sin, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Then he reminds us that the law is given to lead people to Christ. When a person attempts to live the righteous standard of God, they recognize they cannot do it. It is out of frustration and out of desperation that it sends them to Christ. The law is our tutor that is leading us to Christ. So the law exposes our sin nature and it reveals our need for a savior. Next point. The law is a temporary tutor leading us to our permanent teacher. This is found in verses 23 through 25. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, the Apostle Paul uses two figures to represent God's law and its effect on unbelievers. The two that he uses are prison and a guardian. So, prior to Christ, he's saying people are in a spiritual prison. Here's what he means by that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law points out the sin. It does not enable the person to overcome the sin. It does not stop the person from committing that same sin somewhere in the future. So they are left fully aware of their sinfulness and no means to eliminate it in the future. In other words, they're in the spiritual prison. They, they can't break free. That's what he's talking about with the prison. But he also says they're under a guardian or under a tutor. Uh, the word tutor or guardian, it's this Greek word, it's patagogos. 
And here, here's basically what it means. It means to take somebody by the hand and lead them somewhere else. I want you to think about this from this old, ancient, Greek, wealthy culture that he is writing to. This word was extremely significant for that culture. So here's the way it would be worked out there. That is, wealthy Greeks would have a tutor, a guardian, who was entrusted for their young boys at birth moving forward. When a child was born, he was placed under the custody of one of these tutors, and that individual raised that young man. The tutor would bathe him, care for him during the day, even spank him when necessary. The tutors were strict disciplinarians. Their job was to prepare that boy for adulthood, as well as to prepare them for their future teacher. So when a child was able to go to school, it was up to the tutor to get him up, to get him dressed, to make sure that he was at school and the work was done. It was the tutor who made sure that he learned his lessons and he acted in obedience. But the role of the tutor was never supposed to be a permanent role. The tutor was to take care of the child until the child came into adulthood. It was a great day in that young boy's life when he was said to be delivered from the tutor and he gained his freedom because of him maturing and doing the right things. Now, even though the two might remain close over the years, the tutor had no more authority over the young man, and the young man had no more responsibility under the tutor. The job was finished. Paul called the law our pedagogos, our tutor, our guardian. Here's what he's saying, and this is so beautiful if you think about it. The law was acting like our tutor, caring for you, protecting you, for major pitfalls and issues, leading you one day to the future teacher who is Christ. Prior to the teacher's arrival, you were under the tutor. Now that the teacher has come, the tutor's job is now finished. That's the purpose of what the law is about. The law is divinely written by God to lead people to Christ so that they may be justified by faith. Now, this is huge. This is huge. This is huge. So much of the Apostle Paul's argument and so much of the confusion that rests in the church is when somebody says, I am no longer under the law, I'm under grace. If you're talking redemptively, 100% yes. If you're saying, how is a person justified before God? Is it through performance-based righteousness or is it by faith in Jesus Christ? It is 100% by faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're there, you're saying, okay, it's faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have to perform to be right with God. It is what he has done for me. Praise the Lord for that. But if we're not careful, we then say, but that has no relevance to me any longer. The holy, righteous standard of God has no relevance in my life any longer. And it's almost like we push it off to the side and say, I'm free to do what I want. I'm free to sin. I'm free to do. But same guy who taught us this also tells us, be careful not to use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through that, serve one another. He stops us in our tracks and says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't think this has released you from the moral 
law of God, the, the moral commands, the righteous, holy standard of God. That's why this can be a confusing text for so many people. The question is, are you talking about justification? Are you talking about what I do after I've been justified by God? Like, where, where is he leading in this text? Let's go further from here. So, does the law fit into God's plan for today? The answer is yes. While the covenant itself is one that has come through the past, the moral demands of the law have not been diminished. For that matter, they didn't fully begin with the Mosaic Covenant. They didn't fully end with the Mosaic Covenant. God had a holy, righteous standard before the law was given. He has one after Christ has come as well. So the preaching of God's holy standard is still imperative for people to see their need for Christ. Do you all remember one of the quotes, I think it was by Jonathan Edwards, when he was asked what was his preaching style? He said, I preach 90% law and 10% grace. Now that seems strange for somebody who comes after Christ that is now in, in grace, they're walking in this freedom. But the reasoning that he said is until a person sees where they truly stand before God, they think that they are they are giving God something great because of receiving them into salvation. They think God's getting the bargain. But when you and I understand that we are wretched and sinful and overwhelmingly depraved before God, and the only way we know that is because his righteous standard has been boldly declared. Until we understand that, we are not positioned to place faith in Christ. We don't even think we need a Savior at that point. Yes, the law is important. Now let me pause here for just a moment. What happens in churches today when people are so afraid of teaching the truths of God's word that they jump over God's holy and righteous standard and they share a nice devotional thought without sharing truth that's going to convict and prick the heart? And then you get to the end of the service and there's what's referred to as easy beliefism. It's the idea of if you just pray this prayer, you're going to be okay. There's a lot of people one day who are going to split hell wide open. And yet they have prayed a prayer in a church service. They got a false sense of security. Somebody said, just pray this prayer, you're going to be okay. They didn't teach them about the law of God. They didn't teach them about repentance. They didn't teach them about where they stand as unholy and depraved before God. So as a result of that, they just pray a prayer and they're like, I'm good. I got my fire insurance. I'm fine. There's no life change that comes out of that. So here's where we go from there. We find our third point. The law reveals desires that only Christ can fulfill. This is found in verses 26 through 39, or 29. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now there's four blessings that come from Christ that are not possible under the law. Each of these blessings has been hinted at, but the fulfillment does not come until Christ. 
So here's the first of those. Sonship is ours in Christ, verse 26. Sonship is ours in Christ. Although God is father of all men creatively, it is unbiblical to suggest that God is father of all men redemptively. God is only the true spiritual father of those who have repented of their sin by placing faith in Christ. Apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, all human beings, according to Scripture, are enemies of God, Romans 5.10, and children of wrath, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. No one belongs to the Father who does not also belong to the Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what's the second blessing that's found in Christ? That is covering is ours in Christ, verse 27. Now there's two vivid pictures of baptism that are at play in this section of verses. First, baptism as a Jewish rite. That is, if a man wanted to become a Jew, he had to do several things first. He, he had to first be circumcised, then he had to offer sacrifices, then he had to be baptized. It was a ceremonial washing that cleansed away the old life in stepping into this new covenant part of walking with God's people. Leviticus, verses, or Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. Verse 27 talks about being baptized into Christ. It's not speaking here of water baptism. This is being baptized by the Spirit whereby somebody becomes a part of his body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. That phrase, have clothed yourself in Christ, in verse number 27, it refers to a change of garments. When Gideon faced the Midianites and the Amalekites, it said the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Judges chapter 6, verse 34. Came upon literally means clothed, indicating that Gideon was enshrouded in. He was mantled in the Holy Spirit, in this divine coat of armor. That is the concept that the Apostle Paul is sharing here. The believer who is baptized with Christ is divinely clothed in Christ. They are protected. They are enshrouded in. They are in Christ. Christ is in them. The next one, unity is ours in Christ. Look at what it says over in verse number 28 for just a moment. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one. There's that unity idea. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the law itself separated people into different categories. Under the law, there was a fence that was put around the tabernacle, and there was a veil between the holy of holies and the holy place. The law created differences and distinctions, not only between individuals and nations, but also between animals and between food groups. Jesus, in this, is talking about bringing together. There, there's not male nor female. There's not slave nor free man. There's not Jew nor Gentile. There's one in Christ. There is a unity that is ours in Christ. Now, we also have to be careful here, careful here, careful here. Passages like this get yanked out of context, and now somebody says, because of this verse, there's now no design for marriage anymore. Because of this verse, 
there is now an opening for different types of leadership structure within the local church. They say, well, the text says there's neither male nor female. Remember context. He's talking redemptively in this sense. He did not remove the other design pieces that you find within Scripture. We always, always, always have to keep things in context. Next one. Promises are ours in Christ. Finally, the law could never make us heirs of God, based on verse 29. It pointed out the problem. It didn't fix the problem. If it could have fixed the problem, then Christ died needlessly. The logic of the text is as follows. God made the promise to Abraham's seed, Galatians 3.16. That seed is Christ. We remember that part. If we are in Christ by faith, then spiritually speaking, we too are Abraham's seed. This means we are heirs of the spiritual blessings that came with Abraham. It does not mean that the material and the national blessings promised to Abraham set aside for him are automatically ours. There there is this idea that has come into the church of replacement theology. There's a distinction that God has placed upon the nation of Israel. But this text is helping us understand that there are promises that are now ours that are in Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. I know if you're like me, your brain's hurting right now. So I'm going to give you those three statements again as we close out because I understand this is a deep text. How does the law partner with faith? The law exposes our sin nature and reveals our need for a Savior. The law is a temporary tutor leading us to our permanent teacher. And the law reveals desires that only Christ can fulfill. The law is good and necessary when it's used properly. Being used improperly is what happens when it's used to beat people to get them to do what you want them to do. That is being used improperly. When the Spirit of God is indwelling a person and the Word of God is being proclaimed, we need to be okay with the Spirit of God guiding His people, teaching and leading His people. So as long as we know why the law is there and what its right purpose is, we can benefit from it. For the believer, the law performed its purpose. The teacher has come. The tutor is not needed in the sense of redemptively. It's now led us to Christ. We are indwelled with the Spirit of God, but as we are walking with God, we walk according to the standards that he has now placed in Scripture. Everybody got all of that? I'm glad you do because it's still swirling in my brain right now. All right, I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then I want to share some exciting news with you guys. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. And Lord, we recognize that this is one of the most difficult texts that we find in Scripture. So God, we are asking right now, Lord, that you would allow our hearts, our minds to be open to how it is that your truths would come alive in us. God, help us to see exactly what you would have us to see. And Lord, we'll be grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.